Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Of course, we can't really even discuss time without first accepting that time itself is a construct of our neurological apparatus. Time is a virtual reality created by the human brain. Whatever else it is, whatever deeper underlying reality it may have, time is experienced before it is described or understood. And so if we're really gonna get to the heart of the issue, what better way than by exploring the states of consciousness in which time does not exist, aeonic time, or the intersection of every moment with eternity. Considerations of our unique moment in history as a third psychedelic revolution bring us to the point of intersection between the passage of history and the so-called end of history, the moment beyond which our narrative structures collapse and our efforts to arrange things in a linear sequence of events are no longer sufficient for explaining the complexity of postmodern, post-historical, post-human existence. Which is why I am so pleased that this week I get to feature Rack Razam and Niles Heckman on the show. I've known these guys for years and can think of few people more qualified to discuss the bizarre dimensionality of the deeply psychedelic 5-methoxy-DMT experience, the so-called God molecule that forms the basis for their investigations in the first episode of their documentary series, Shamans of the Global Village. I met Rack back in 2010 while I was helping him record interviews at the first MAP Psychedelic Science Conference. And so in anticipation of this year's event in April, I hooked up with these two guys to discuss what they think the revelations of psychedelic consciousness disclose to us about the future evolution of the human species and our place within the unfathomable living intelligence of our biosphere. Yep, it's going to be one of these wild rides, folks. So suit up for an extra long episode and a rather delightful ramble down the corridors of speculative gabbery that might actually touch on for the first time in the history of this show what those rhetorical unborn future digital archaeologists we expect are listening in transtemporally to these episodes might actually be. But before we get started, I just want to take a moment to thank everybody who has been crowd sponsoring Future Fossils podcasts on Patreon, giving two or five or ten dollars a month to support the ten hours a week or so I spend on this show to help articulate the beautiful futures that we want our descendants living in and to give us a necessary bracing dose of hope for our confused but still quite promising endeavor. If you would like to help this project, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield is the site and your sponsorship affords you access to extensive archives of auxiliary material, including music, poetry, early access to new media, 
and even original artwork, if that's your thing. A special shout out to Heidi Berg, Lavasio, and Camilo Klingen for joining the illustrious roster of Patreon supporters. And also big thanks to the folks who left reviews for Future Fossils on iTunes recently. That helps a lot to get this show into the ears and minds of everyone who would appreciate it. Don't forget also we have a Facebook discussion group and I post interesting future flavored articles in there just about every day. So if you want to stay up on the community aspect of this show, the the discussion, you want to meet some of the other weirdos listening to this, then look for us on Facebook. And with that, I'll quit my yabbing and let Rack and Niles take you on an adventure into the global shamanic culture, the third psychedelic revolution, the revelations of the world's most potent psychedelics, and, weirdly enough, snails. Wow, do we talk a lot about snails in this episode. Have fun. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Future Fossils, to the latest episode of Future Fossils, in which we get down and dirty with Rack Razam and Niles Heckman, the, uh, what would I call you guys? Psychonauts. (laughs) You're both collaborating on this project, Shamans of the Global Village, which is a very exciting and interesting thing that we will probably get to in this conversation. How else would you describe yourselves, gentlemen? I'm, I'm an assassin bee of consciousness, Michael. I think we're agent provocateurs helping the, uh, the species to, uh, to evolve through short, short sharp stings of, uh, of media inoculations. You know the theory about uh, assassin bees that within the hive when the queen goes off, some, something in the collective knows it, and when, when she's starting to take all the resources for herself and not for the benefit of the, the entire hive, and then any one of the other bees can be that gets close enough to the queen and then kills the queen and then either becomes the queen or a new queen forms. And they're assassin bees of consciousness. That's, wow. that's what I think they are, yeah. It could be an urban legend, but I've been saying that story for quite a few. I think I heard it off Bob Forte actually years ago, and I'm, I just repeat the stories I hear. Well, it's probably checked if it's probably checked if Robert Forte is, is saying it. But you do live on the internet now. You have no excuse. All of us are responsible for being our own real-time fact-checkers, which has been a real rude awakening for me in the last few months. Anyway. Yeah, well, and, you know, I'd add to that, too, by saying, you know, Michael, that, um, yeah, you know, it's like we all try and just create something that's in alliance to maybe what, you know, the ancient magicians called the great work, right? So we try and create things that are helping instead of, you know, helping move us towards solutions rather than just kind of continuing the old dynamics and old problems. So Shams of the Global Village is something that Rack and I have teamed up on to create that we're both very proud of. And it's just something that is doing that for both of us because it's utilizing what we're both good at and also trying to kind of create a piece of media that is, yes, helping do ever so slight you know, raising of the cell phone signal from maybe, you know, what rack cars calls some certain amount of bars to a higher level of bars in terms of people's consciousness in a little way, as, as small of a way possible as we can do. So that sometimes you never know your influence on people, but other times it's, uh, it's, uh, it can really move us forward. So we're, we're happy to make something that's doing that. And that's what we're always trying to share with the show as we go forward. Yeah. I like that notion that it's, 
not raising the vibration, which as we all know is anti-scientific, but that it's improving the reception. It's like you can say, oh gosh, that's high vibration, low vibration. No, nah, that doesn't that doesn't really work for me. I like where you guys are headed with it in terms of just like we're creating these little like source signal base repeater stations everywhere. And if we can just Oh, I like that one. Get, I like that one. Make it more and more coherent. You know, it's almost as if within the culture, within the species, we're a mesh network of mimetic propagators who are broadcasting the originating uh, signal as it comes back in with five bar galactic godhead consciousness. <laughs> yes, let's do this. <laughs> well, that's, uh, you know, that's not three bar MEO DMT. It's it's five. Right? <laughs> so true, so true. what is uh, truly alive for you right now, gentlemen, in this time capsule, which we can only hope will be one day discovered by archaeologists and that they will extract some unfathomable meaning from our conversation? Well, you know, you, you hit it on uh, vibration, Michael. And, you know, I always, I always key back to something, you know, which is kind of in the realm of what people call natural law, which is the seven hermetic principles. And, you know, there's a basically seven base principles of how the kind of structure of reality works and what we're in and what we're about. And one of those basic seven is vibration. So I think I would actually key into certain things. You know, everything is vibratory on some level. So when you do talk about like, oh, you find somebody that's at your similar vibration, or even if you are learning from somebody else that might be further along their path than you they are could you know you could arguably say that they are at a slightly higher vibratory level i mean that kind of type of language does resonate with me so i always try and um i always enjoy when we are you know doing a podcast tour like this which rack and i've been doing to uh help kind of share the show and just talk about the show it's nice to do that with other people that have kind of like ears to hear in terms of that vibratory mm -hmm. dynamic where sure. people are interested in this kind of content they're interested in this material and, you know, the show is something that we've created that is very much kind of a niche thing. But um, as we kind of share it more and more, we uh, it's something that could also spread uh, through the system at a larger level because more people are becoming very interested in these things, uh, which is, you know, a part of what the subject matter of the first episode of the series is about. So we'll certainly kind of chat about what that is and, um, you know, Rack can get into that. You know, what I'm finding as well is like, you know, I, I lead ayahuasca retreats in Peru and I do shamanic facilitation and I make media about uh, what I call the global shamanic resurgence and this increase in interest in the West in plant and earth sacraments and medicines. But but also, you know, as people say, there's more than one pathway to, to the divine or to this work or to this idea of activation. Um, whether that's, you know, Tantra or uh, meditation uh, or plant sacraments or just there's so many different ways. But essentially what they're all doing is raising vibration. And a lot of the work with plant medicines and especially with 5-MeO-DMT, which is that's the medicine which is in the buffet of various toads. So episode one of Shamans of the Global Village looks at the work of Dr. Octavio Retig, who is a, a Mexican uh, who was originally a GP. He has a uh, his own uh, addiction history. He was a crack addict for many years, and he helped heal himself through working with uh, psychoactive medicines. And then he helped uh, bring this medicine of the Bufovarius toad, which contains in its paratoid glands a secretion of both uh, bufotenine and 5-MeO-DMT, which is potentially, when smoked, the, the most powerful psychoactive known 
to all cultures. I mean, it, it incurs endogenously in the human brain. Uh, 5-MeO can be found in many plant species. Uh, it's in all the mammals. It occurs as part of our, you know, tryptamine wetware and our connection to consciousness itself. If the human organism is in total darkness for 10 days in a darkness retreat, which many indigenous cultures still do, and I know Mantak Chia, one of the tantric, modern tantric masters, offers darkness retreats in Thailand, uh, the human brain will, um, you know, the melatonin, which is is involved in setting um, skin pigment and creating a sense of time and um, biorhythms and our um, integrating, you know, vitamin D and sunlight, that, that goes down the serotonin pathways during the daytime. In total darkness, that starts to dissipate and then the tryptamines start to build up. Uh, you know, by about, well, a few days into the darkness ritual, the brain will start to produce uh, penealine, which acts as a booster. By about day six or seven in total darkness, the human brain will start to endogenously secrete 5-MeO-dimethyltryptamine, which is essentially, you know, this vibratory experience to bring it back to vibration of this oceanic white light unity state, which some people throughout history have called God, or you could call in modern terminology a non-dual state, a unity consciousness state. The closest, you know, one of the best metaphors I've found for it is in the poet Rumi, the Sufi poet who said the drop rejoins the ocean. The sense of ego identity, which we also know from modern neuroscience, is uh, often involved in these regional clusters of the brain called the default mode network. When those are switched off, that sense of ego and identity which is essentially a filter between us and mind at large, or once the ego is gone, this sense of what we really are, these larger beings, this larger capacity to hold an energetic state and a consciousness state, which encompasses higher dimensionality and potentially even source itself, that opens up. But the really interesting thing is, after by the day six or seven in a darkness ritual, the brain starts to produce N-N-dimethyltryptamine, which is what many consider the visionary state, and the experience potentially of entities or geometries or things which the, the witness of the ego, which is still involved in that experience, can be... Uh, uh, moving through but can be feeling separate from but at the peak of it there's this dissolution into a complete egoic listener state of unity consciousness which seems to be the great pool of becoming itself and that underlies the play of forms and the illusion of separateness that we're you know we're all vessels in but as Niall said to bring this full circle it's really all about vibration and all these different modalities whether it's martial arts or tantra or breath work uh, or whatever, they all involve the human organism modulating its vibratory state. And, you know, as part of that, uh, indigenous cultures around the world believe that we have a multiplicity of beings in the sense we have an energetic being, we have an emotional being, we have a physical being, and that, uh, you know, illness, when it comes out in the physical body, sort of the port of last call that it comes out in the physical body when it's manifested or being lodged on deeper levels. There's a, a famous um, Canadian doctor, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's been working with addictions for over 20 years, and he says that in his uh, experience, at the root of all addictions is some sense of trauma in the individual, and some, you know, something that is lodged deep within them on an emotional, even energetic level. And that he's been working a lot with ayahuasca in recent years, and that these plant sacraments, they can work very pronouncedly on a physical level to help people's healing, but often what they're doing is that they're working on deeper levels, whether that's emotional or energetic, to release 
what the blockages are in people, which is actually a blockage of their vibratory being. So within their, their being on a physical, emotional, and energetic level, it's all vibration. So interestingly enough, you know, I really think that the, the great work, as Niles has sort of pointed to, is how to learn to cleanse and purify and hold this high vibration, which in its originating essence is coming from a higher dimensional uh, state and ingresses in and creates the material world and seems to be at this point in not even human history in the world ages that we live in, which are beyond his story and beyond culture and, and more embedded in nature, it seems to be that this energy is coming in and uh, it's, it's, it's becoming denser, it's becoming electrified, and this vibratory state of excitation and awakening, which is almost akin to an orgasm when you think about it, uh, is building within the human species, within our culture, which is embedded within nature, which is embedded within source itself. That's what I think. Well, that, that is a fine riff. Brack mentions his story, you know, which is obviously like our fictionalized version of what, you know, our species has done in the past and where we come from and who we are. And another play on his story is my story, which is the mystery, right? So any sort of internal experience like what, you know, is called the toad medicine or what Octavia refers to as the toad medicine, which is essentially the natural form of five, you know, MEO DMT, which we highlighted in the episode. Any experience that one has with this you know, with this dynamic, which is very much an initiation into a higher state of consciousness, leads one to kind of discover a little bit, maybe the smallest amount of mystery, right? So um, instead of just history, it's all about kind of finding your own mystery. There might be a way to tie those two together, if, if you'll indulge this. The recently, or rather more recently, relatively recently discovered gamma brainwave is that I am to understand the finest like the the highest frequency brainwave and that it decays uh, that's why it's it was harder to notice they found that it, it seems to coordinate activity between brain regions and uh that it may actually you know that there's there's some sort of whether it's indicative of coherent brain activity as a product or whether it is actually uh conducting information between brain regions i don't know but I do think it's interesting to note here that we can, I think, get on this notion of the, the highest vibrational known brainwave being that which yields or is yielded uh, by the coherent brain activity. And that when you're in one of those ultra coherent states, you tend not to be fractured uh, psychically into categories you know that you're in you're in this this increasingly well described flow state which as jamie wheel in his book has has talked about which i haven't read um but i've you know i've heard him speak about this this uh the uh richness of information the effortlessness the uh, selflessness and the timelessness, because those are all things, the, the, the self-other divide and the sense of time and with it episodic autobiographical memory and with that a set of preferences that creates effort, right? That basically like the richness of the DMT state overwhelms those processes in the brain and probably diverts blood away from them in order to better allocate resources for like 
attending to it. Like they talk about, you know, babies basically are a low signal to noise ratio brain, like learning mm. so fast that there's not much of a person in there. And that, that's, that's also true when you're really afraid or when you're infatuated with somebody and your pupils dilate. It's because you're trying to like learn about them on a most likely unconscious level. You're trying to absorb more data. And so there's this, this whole relationship between data flow through a person and like the efficiency of the way that they, uh, that they organize internally in order to accommodate it. And the sense that, that basically like the big mystery and then the little my story, like the big mystery sort of yeah. like squishes the little, the little mystery out. In, in the, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's you know, no, it seems like with these experiences that it, one thing they do is they show us that we are kind of from like what you were mentioning, Michael, a mental perspective that we're almost like these subjective consciousnesses in the that are in the aggregate part of a larger objective consciousness, right? So this experience kind of allows you to, you know, ego dissolve into the ultimate, like, universal mind, right? So because there's ancient wisdom talk of, like, how, in fact, most of the universe itself is, like, a mental construct. So that, that this type of experience kind of lends to what you're saying in that regard of, like, you you almost have this larger galactic, uh, larger galactivated um upload to universal mind in a lot of ways in terms of the information that you get or where you go or what the experience is. I think it certainly would become easier for you to like relax the screen against what you might consider irrelevant. You know, that's like so, so much of our experience. It's like over 99% of what we sense, we do not perceive, you know, mm. it's not filtered up to consciousness and that maybe you know, if you kind of shake off the the bullshit story that you're running in your head at any given moment, then you're so much more uh, likely not to send a command down the, the chain to the senses saying, uh, "Don't don't tell me about this, this, and this," because it doesn't fit the story. Hey, I'd like to uh, jump in on the uh, the gamma sort of frequency there. Recently in December, I was working with a neuroscientist out here in Australia when Dr. Octavia Reddy came out to do some retreat work with the, the Buffer Various Toad. And uh, I won't mention his name because he is a rigorous neuroscientist and he continually berates me for my hippie sort of, I don't know, you know, right brain, left brain, whatever it is, um, languagizing and sort of intuitive conceptualizing of his rigorous scientific data. And there's some data which he's been getting from doing baseline readings uh, before the, the 5-MeO buffet various toad and after and, you know, comparing those readings, that's closed eye visuals, open eye visuals before and after. So getting four sort of quadrant sets of readings. And he's been getting some what he considers really revolutionary understandings of consciousness from what happens on 5-MeO. But to, to paraphrase and probably to bastardize his work completely, um, you know, there are some interesting uh, um, aspects of cohesion that happens uh, during and after uh, the 5-MeO toad experience. But gamma was something which came up quite a lot. Now, gamma's only been um, something which we've had the technology, the, you know, there's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, theta, 
and what is it, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, theta? Yeah. Um, regions of the brain, as we know, beta's sort of problem solving, alpha's sort of this low level idling state. You know, gamma's more the cohesion, as you said, Michael. Delta and theta are involved more in the meditative states or deep uh, dreaming states, things like that, or deep shamanic states, for instance. But gamma is something which happens at a certain frequency, which is so fine that it's only been measurable uh, with technology in the last few decades or, or less. So, you know, it, it, even on that level, it makes me wonder if our technology was more fine-tuned, if we would find more gradations or levels uh, of consciousness itself. But um, you're right. Basically, you know, gamma is this cohesive state that comes together. And we had some interesting readings uh, where basically what was happening was that, you know, alpha, which is more a daytime, really aware present in the world type state and theta, which is more sort of daydreaming or, um, you know, meditative state, they were coming into phase lock and creating uh, a gamma frequency. So it seemed to be not, not just that gamma was a sense of cohesion, but when, when working with 5-MeO, which incidentally seemed to point towards the fact that uh, it wasn't just blood flows going from the brain itself. Obviously, you know, um, blood and glucose in the brain taking up a lot of energy and having a a full release 5-MeO experience obviously processes and takes up a lot of energy uh, in the brain physically and neurologically as well as on a consciousness level. But essentially the frontal, the frontal lobes of the brain uh, were diminished to the point of almost being switched off. And right. it, it, it was almost, you know, on other psychedelics, what we've been seeing with uh, the, the Beckley Foundation uh, and different studies around the world with LSD, uh, psilocybin and ayahuasca, it's a different regional clusters of the brain, which uh, are called the default mode network, would be switched off and slightly different with each psychedelic too, uh, in the effect, uh, in which, which regions. Um, and that would mean the mind at large was opening up and having what we consider the psychedelic experience. But with 5-MeO, it was wasn't just that it was that the whole frontal lobes were completely you know offline and it was creating a very different effect of consciousness itself but gamma was definitely involved and um essentially gamma networks last only usually around 10 seconds they're very brief uh spurts or bursts of gamma activity but there was an increased sense of uh, cohesion within the gamma networks. And intuitively what I felt, because all this is very dry science, right? But when I've had, you know, uh, 5-MeO experiences, and usually I revert to a more mystical terminology, the drop rejoins the ocean, all this type of stuff. But there's a gradation of my consciousness wherein there's this unfolding. And as I was saying at the start, there's this letting go and surrender and raising of vibration. And, you know, I've seen, and you'll see in our documentary shamans of the global village when we took down uh different westerners to experience the medicine you know legally in mexico with octavio uh on tiburon island in a sacred shamanic ceremony and set and setting is very important and preparation is very important uh you know but the more we can relax our brainwave states going into the experience or the more that we've worked on ourselves to release our traumas because has a very distinctive uh, physiological response. When it sets off the tryptamine cascade in the brain, it actually then uh, works, once it's had its sort of psychic effect on consciousness, it activates the endocrine system in the body, which then flushes through the body. I call it God's factory reset. And there's been two scientific studies done on this, which posit that it's uh, an immunomodulating mechanism and it can potentially reverse or cure tumors and things like that as well. But essentially, you know, if we have blockage 
blockages on a physical level, that will uh, impede our ability to let go or open on a vibrational level. But as the 5-MeO experience has been coming on, I find that uh, the bandwidth of my consciousness just goes from zero to a million. And essentially, you can do a threshold dose of 5-MeO-DMT and you can still have some sense of ego left. I did a podcast the other month with a, a religious scholar looking at, at the Vedic texts and all the Sanskrit sort of uh, maps that have been left behind of different samadhi states and different levels. And what I was really struck with and what was really enticing to me is that everything that I'm experiencing and I languageize has all been researched before. All these different, you know, religious cultures have these myth maps and these levels of consciousness and in, in embedded within their spirituality that they train people with in their containers to get to from meditation, but also originally through sacramental entheogenic use. But there's a level within which you can have a threshold dose within which I can still be a witness and an observer on what I call the event horizon of deep source. So it's mm. it's like I'm not there, I'm not there, but I am there just enough to realize that I'm watching something. And what I'm watching is I'm on the outer edge, the, the lip cauldron of deep source itself. And there's an event horizon within which just before I can lose full egoic consciousness and the drop has become the ocean, that that drop can see the entire ocean like a tsunami wave just cresting on the horizon. And on that lip, on that event horizon, everything is there. I get this incredibly tangible, intuitive sense of the ancestors. And I don't mean just my, my you know, chronological, um, biological ancestors. I mean all those who have gone before in the species and are still perhaps alive as discarnate uh, intelligences on the Akashic frequency level of this bandwidth just before the edge of deep source, um, or perhaps intelligences which live within the light and within the the outer edge of deep source. Uh, but what it strikes me to bring it back to gamma is that it seems within which in that gamma lock, that this is sort of phase state of gamma lock, that the 5-MeO experience, it is, it's a gamma and within that is how we access the Gaia network and beyond the Gaia network, potentially what these cultures have called things like Indra's net or Matakwiasan or, you know, great spirit, this, this whole sense of source itself, which creates a conduit of uh, discarded intelligences in the multiplicity of being that are all present there on that level. And it seems to be that it's a gamma level and that, that that's what happens when we come into this phase lock of the, the gamma state itself. So just putting that out there. And just to just to add to that, Rack, I mean, in the episode, um, you know, we highlight a bit of a history slideshow of like the toads, evidence of the toad being seen throughout Mesoamerican art and how, you know, it's very it's very likely and especially as proposed through the art that the toads have been used, you know, through the eons in terms of these ancient cultures and civilizations. So like what Rack described, I mean, you reminded me while saying that, dude, of like an ancient civilization that was actually somewhat civilized, unlike how we are now, would have a regular practice of always going back to this, you know, you know, event horizon and talking to the ancestors or doing those like accesses to what you might call deep source and doing that on a somewhat, you know, not necessarily like regular basis, but on, you know, some sort of timeline where they reoccurringly, um, you know, go back there for the advantages that those things bring um, with whatever it is that you're accessing, whether or not it's the Kashik or what I've heard is also called like the halls of a mentee or these kind of, you know, the place where all things are stored. So that kind of reminded me of that while you're saying that, dude. 
You know what else? Oh. You know that, that snails make uh, – apparently snails are in gamma states. I mean, they must have, like, killed them and spliced them up and studied their neurons to, to understand this. But the same neuroscientist told me that snails make gamma. He, he was just telling me all this scientific stuff. And I've got my written notes in front of me. I was just like, I just want to make bumper stickers, like neuro-shamanic bumper stickers, like snails make gamma. You can see the, the T-shirts now, can't you? Or like, you know um, – I don't know. But the interesting thing about, about the, the gamma networks are last 10 seconds, but it's like, I don't know, 10-second gamma networks, you know, like it's this species gestalt. I, I can't stop the auto-poetic languagizing of bumper stickers around this stuff. <laughs> help me, Michael. Help me. It's great. Well, you know, Richard Doyle, in my ever-quoting of Richard Doyle or citing of him, uh, he, he makes the point that in, in the first chapter of Darwin's Pharmacy, he talks about the... Uh, how the the symptom of psychedelics seems to be page after page of graphomaniacal claims of ineffability. <laughs> yep. So that one. I just want to. I just got to say this is a this is we're thirty three minutes exactly into this call, and uh, not the podcast that you guys are hearing, but the call that we're on. And in this moment, it just feels appropriate to let our listeners know. Because it occurs to me, like, I'm still kind of new to this podcasting game, and I forget that people have not, like, people are coming in from all over. Like, I don't necessarily know you if you're listening to this now, and that's great. That's awesome. I would like to. Uh, I bet these guys would, too. The point is that, like, we got to make sure that we're all on the same page. So, uh, one of the things that I need to make clear at this very moment is, and probably, like, refresh this in every episode and make this part of it, is that it's incredible now and more people should know that within like the last 10, 15 years, we've learned an incredible amount about the brain and about psychedelics and about the physical correlates of human consciousness. And we've found without any shadow of any kind of a doubt with like the most rigorous neurological methods available to us that these spaces that shamans and Zen masters and other, you know, enlightened or awakened people have been getting into for thousands of years. We found that these things are real, that they're reporting from places that have commonalities across brain scans, because we've looked at brain scans from of people from all kinds of traditions. And so we've been able to compare that to the aging brain. We've been able to compare that to the brain on psychedelics. And actually, for one website, I highly recommend happinessbeyondthought.blogspot.com, which happens to belong to Gary Weber, who is himself an outlying data point in one of these like uh, massive studies of people who have no activity in the default mode network. And this guy is like completely transparent and it's incredible uh, at, uh, speaking with him because there's nothing standing in the way of his complete presence with you in the conversation. And What's so, his name again? Gary Weber, and there was an article written about him in Psychology Today that you can find on their website. Uh, it's really fascinating. He used to he used to work in a submarine, and I, I think it just, as far as it being like a time capsule, this recording, and also good advice to everyone listening, uh, he made a point in an article that I just read on his blog where he said that uh, he was drafted into a, a service and ended up living on a submarine for like three months. 
and had no news and missed assassinations, I, I, presumably the Kennedy assassination given his age. And he said it didn't make any difference in his life and that basically uh -huh. he was encouraging people to just completely unhinge themselves from the news cycle because it's anchoring these toxic patterns of uh, uh -huh. aggravated, like inflamed egoic activity. So I don't know. What do you guys think about all that? Well, um, yeah, go ahead, Rack. Go ahead. No, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, we're seeing that in, in mainstream media, the whole fake news thing and the whole sort of war between ideologies and, and, and the dualities and, and just the powers that be how they've weaponized information streams. And people are people are aware of that. People know they can't trust, you know, not just mainstream media or alt right media or almost anyone. But we see that on one level of, a, of the cultural elites, perhaps. But then also on a social level, so called social media is just a flame with trolls and of people like uh, adversarially sort of, you know, against each other and divisive. And it's it's not it's not like a, a global village of online social media where people are have you know, a container, you know, a friend of mine says you should treat Facebook like ceremony because we, we go through these shamanic rituals and these medicines and things like that. But one of the great things I've learned from ayahuasca culture is not just the medicine of ayahuasca, but the idea of a circle and a ceremony and a ritual and a lineage and approaching things with reverence and with, uh, with presence. And if we apply that to the ceremony of life, we need to apply it to things like social media. And we need to choose wisely where we put our energy because we know that, you know, where, where attention goes, consciousness flows, and that we start to disempower ourselves and energetically leech our energy off by engaging in or having to defend ourselves from the trolls online, whether they're paid government agents or just people that are angry because they're so upset with the system and the powers that be and so unhappy in their lives in the culture which has been created, which we all know is not working and is disintegrating in front of our eyes. And, you know, potentially we need to join the right type of social media groups where the focus and the ritual and the, the container that is created is about problem solving, is about community, is about equity, about listening. Um, we need to have the right mechanisms in place, which mainstream social media just doesn't have and people are getting so weighed down from it they're switching off in droves from facebook from social media in general um which is probably healthy because there is a whole world outside of the screen and we need to be engaging more with that world and with ourselves as a community in the flesh and blood world but essentially, if we look at technology and the internet and social media as this cascading evolutionary stepping stone uh, of interconnection, and it's part of nature as well, and it's part of us, it's all how we use it. It's like trying to ban a psychedelic because it can have an effect. Well, we, we don't ban s social media because it has an effect, but we're also not potentially using it in the right way. All of these things are tools of consciousness and tools potentially for community building and for self-development. But we really need to be using it more effectively. And, and if we did, you look at the, the different things online like um, direct, direct democracy movements when there's you know ways that we can use the interconnectedness of tech, these technologies to connect to each other, but we haven't caught up with the social mores and the social conventions to know how to use it in, in an applicable way.
most social media is not actually social media. It's anti-social media. And just like, you know, we're both highlighting is that social media is a tool like Rack says. And if you use that tool to then meet up with people in the flesh or, you know, I really enjoy one-on-one or, you know, small conversation, like small group conversation like this, which is nice when we have resources like Skype or, you know, you use some tool, some social media tool to then get face-to-face with somebody because all the real juicy stuff happens face-to-face, you know, with people in, you know, real life experiences together. Together. Like, you know, all of our interactions, Michael, you and I have never been in a room together, but we've certainly had the benefit of talking over like a tool like Skype, which is, allows us to communicate and have fellowship together, which is great. And then Rack and I were two people that knew each other for, you know, many kind of months through social media, but then we became good friends because we actually took the time to physically meet up. And that's what, you know, human beings are really about. We're not designed to be sitting in front of screens all day, but we are designed to, designed to be. Wait, didn't, didn't we go to Burning Man, Niles? <laughs> yes, I think we had a, we had a few pilgrimages. To, we've had a couple of pilgrimages to Burning Man. But the, yeah. But, the, yeah, but the point is that we use social media in moderation as a tool to then do that. And we weren't lost in the soup of, yes, like the negative aspects of social media or any sort of like technology that's designed to kind of. Uh, is is claiming that it's designed to connect us when in reality it just compartmentalizes us and can be oftentimes yes used as a tool to spread bad information as much as good information. Mm. But yeah, go go ahead, Michael. Sing it. You know, so here we are. We're at this basis where like the work that you guys are advocating and and disclosing and getting out there into the world is uh, you know we we have this basis for it now to understand that like. It doesn't seem that even even though we have this really robust and rigorous basis of correlates for all of these different states, that we can still like uh, what's the guy's name? Alvin Noe. I forget. I don't know how you pronounce it. The, he wrote uh, Out of Our Heads. You know, he's a neuroscientist, and he's just making the case that you know the same case Gregory Bateson made back in the 40s. You know that that consciousness isn't located in the brain, uh, that there are correlates that relate to specific conscious states, but that, you know, so, I mean, it just gets nuanced in a fun and interesting way. Oh, can I edge in on that? You know, what's really interesting on the neuroscience level as well is that when when the 5-MeO experience happens and the, um, the frontal lobes of the brain go offline, essentially the the thinking is on a neuro neuroscience level is that if those pathways are offline what then comes to prominence is potentially it's not that nature's making in the brain or 5-MeO is carving out a new pathway when you take this substance as we know it's endogenous to the human brain to begin with and to our consciousness inimically um but older pathways are potentially rising to the surface or can uh be freed up to be utilized and so if that egoic uh, filter of consciousness which is located in the brain is is switched off then potentially older pathways which and this is me and this is my intuition we know that science also says there's essentially like three brains in the human organism there's the gut brain in the sense of your microbacteria and your gut intuition and those sort of primal things and there's the heart brain when essentially there's neuronal tissue in the heart And because the 5-MeO experience, when you have released all your blockages and you surrender to the ultimate oceanic rejoining of unity consciousness, it is this high frequency of unconditional love. Like it's the originating source vibration, which everything else manifests from and permutations of. But it's such a a heart-based experience. I wonder if it's not the heart brain that is receiving that 5-MeO, what the 5-MeO neurochemically 
and the gamma phase lock is creating when we open into that network, the older networks in the heart may be just opening up and, you know, like a satellite dish, we're receiving the signal, which is eternally, constantly always broadcast, but that network is subsumed and filtered by the egoic network of the, the brain. And so it, it potentially that could be what is happening or also maybe even on a, on a gut level, um, you know, that these things are opening up. I have had some very interesting, basically, uh, on some experiences with NN dimethyltryptamine, of course, in countries where this is legal. Um, basically, I, I had the last six or so experiences you know, over many, quite a few years ago now, but essentially where I would have this almost entity experience, but it was like there was this airbag of higher consciousness around me on the astral and these little spermy white sort of airbaggy entities, which didn't feel like they were separate from me. It felt like they were almost a representation of my microbacteria and stomach biota, because we know we are a colony organism on the physical level. And so I wonder if on the astral level that that stomach bacteria and the millions of uh, life forms that are part of what I consider to be my individual organism are represented on the astral. It seemed like that was what was happening. And I was having this experience where they were moving my body and I wasn't moving it and doing mudras. And it seemed like, and this is quite quite common on tryptamines, you know, I've canvassed the, the psychedelic community and there seems to be almost like a um, an inkjet pre a test on a printer when it does the recalibration. Is that essentially sometimes people experience this spontaneous asanas and mudras um, in their bodies, which they're not in control of. And I had this happen six times in a row. Yeah, where, where these entities, which I think were a representation on a soul level of my stomach bacteria type of thing, were basically, and but the thing is they had an intelligence that was autonomous and separate from my egoic intelligence because they would raise my right hand and I would look at them in, in, in the process and they would tap my finger and they would be like, are you ready? We're going to do this again. And I'd be like, oh, it's you guys again. Okay. And let's go. And it was completely autonomous and separate from my egoic intelligence. And then that would start the mudra thing. And then that would create an energetic flow within my body of opening to the larger capacity of energetic um, you know, frequencies around me and then working through me. And it was like a recalibration. And so I wonder if the stomach bacteria and that level of um, intelligence and of receptivity is involved in the tryptamine state as well as the heart level, with, especially with 5-MeO. And then it's just it's just this latest development, which in you know in the last few, I don't know, but let's say a few hundred thousand years, we have this brain structure, which has created this egoic frontal lobe cortex type device, which has been very effective at navigating the terrestrial biosphere, but it's been at the expense of what Australian Aboriginals call during time consciousness and what other Indigenous cultures understand of the relationship we have with the planet, we are not separate from. And, you know, this whole current drive in Silicon Valley to understand non-dual states, which is a euphemistic way of saying unity consciousness or God consciousness, means that there is no separation. I mean, it means that it's like saying consciousness. If it's non-dual, it's everywhere and it's radiating and broadcastly everywhere. And you just need that mechanism which is within us to pick up that frequency of that network. And this is what, you know, so much of these, um, I see is really uh, wonderful developments, even a sidestep to shamanic culture, but in the meditation culture, in like Eckhart Tolle and the power of now type stuff. And, you know, that, that got out with Oprah to like 6 million people or something and crashed the internet. It's like all that you, you see these patterns within culture, everyone is starting to understand that. And this is what, you know, psychedelic culture has said throughout its history as well, that 
essentially it's the ego it's not that the ego needs to be killed it needs to be brought back into right relationship and psychedelics have proven throughout the 20th century and now entheogens and shamanic sacraments again in the 21st when we reduce the default mode network and lower the egoic self we rejoin um, a larger sense of being and a planetary being and a divine being. And it seems to be the antidote to history, to the egoic sense of what we've created in history, um, you know, which is a culture which is embedded within nature, which has gone wrong. It's like become like a global cancer within, within the biological organism of nature. Yet we are nature. And so, you know, nature has started to orchestrate the antidote to that. And now we have this, the psychedelic movement and stepping stone on that has become the shamanic resurgence and all of that paralleling the meditation movements and the non-dual movements and this idea of not killing the ego but bringing it back into right relationship you know it's like it's like once we do that then we create space within ourselves for what is within ourselves which is this deeper vibration and deeper broadcast signal of consciousness to come to the fore and just to add to that, a part of what we're trying to do with the show is to kind of highlight what, what Rack's talking about in terms of medicines, because ancient cultures didn't call these things psychedelics. You know, they called them medicines because so much of what taking a plant, you know, sacrament or an earth sacrament, because the toad obviously is not a plant, it comes from the earth, is that the species is out of balance and is not in right relationship with, you know, we might call wholeness, which is having a larger connection to the greater spiritual, spiritual ecology of what we're in and what we're doing. So these things are, you know, beautiful medicines to help connect people with that in a very short period of time. And of course, it's all about, like Rack also highlighted earlier, putting them in the right respect, the proper container, the proper set and setting, the proper kind of prep to them, to what you put in is what you get out. So part of what we're trying to highlight with the show is kind of highlight how these things have been used in ancient cultures and ancient civilizations. And we are seeing kind of a resurgence of people being very interested in these things like, you know, this whole kind of wild conversation that we've had tonight is kind of scratching the surface of discussing that these things are, you know, amazing medicines to connect you to these greater states of awareness and understanding. Because, you know, as Rack talks about with like DMT being naturally like endogenous to the brain, if somebody's listening to this and they haven't had any direct experiences with or they think they haven't had any direct experiences with something like 5-MeO-DMT, you might want to think again because it's very likely that, you know, any time that you've dreamed, it's very possible that you're having what's essentially tryptamine dreams because DMT is very likely just dream juice. And everything that Rack's talking about is kind of like a, a, a amplified accelerated, yeah, an amplified version of what happens when you dream, except, you know, cube to the thousandth degree. And also on another front with Rack talking about stuff being heart-based, you know, a lot of these experiences, us as men are very mind-based, you know, usually, and women are very good about, you know, being more heart-based in things. So these medicines uh, can open you up heart-based, heart-wise so much to the larger, you know, kind of awakening of, of light and love that, you know, people that are on the edge of death, for example, have oftentimes talked about where anybody that's had like a near-death experience, oftentimes you hear similarities with what people talk about in terms of going to the light or seeing a, a light-based tunnel. And that is very similar to what happens to people oftentimes on this shamanic medicine is it's a very white light-based experience of pure, you know, kind of galactic love. So there's a lot of interesting similarities there in terms of, you know, these things being used as medicines to bring us back into wholeness of what we are and what we're doing here. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> is it safe for us to say then that uh, dream juice is the antidote to history? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I've, it's interesting. I've talked about this before in terms of like myth being probably more accurate in terms of what our history is about rather than, you know, our prescribed history of what we've been told has been our past. And I'm starting to believe, I'm starting to really think that our history from what the history books have said, even from a mainstream level or, or an alternate level are completely not what we think, you know, and I'm also starting to realize that so much of five cents material reality is ultimately illusory so these experiences kind of show us that right wait, wait how many senses do you have five <laughs> are, you, are you sure <laughs> how so my goodness because right outside i've i i've decided i'm going to start selling books on amazon because i have a lot of them that i'm not going to read and i kept, one of the books that i kept today was michael murphy's future of the body Michael Murphy, mm -hmm. George Leonard, you know, the Esalen Center guys, they've cataloged all this research. And supposedly there are, if you're being generous or splicey or whatever you want to call it, you know, there are in taxonomy, there's lumpers and splitters, right? You, you want to call them two species or you want to keep them one species. The more generous taxonomist would, would say there are 16 senses, 16 human senses. Wow. And these include things that like, for the purposes of this conversation, you might just have to accept exist, but you know, you could review the evidence in this book and then decide for yourself, such as hmm. clairsentience, clairaudience, you know, specifically like the senses doubled in this non-local way. Yeah. I would separate that as like a kind of typical riff that I would talk about is, is a helpful dynamic of separating like exoteric versus esoteric. So maybe if, if somebody's trying to classify a larger amount of senses that we have, it would be like internal esoteric senses of, you know, kind of what we can open up to spiritually, not like materially. Some, like some Rudolf Steiner, how to know higher worlds. Yeah, how to know higher worlds. And there was a lot of talk about how Steiner was tapping into something essentially called the wisdom stream because he had, you know, connected to this kind of greater ecology through his practices and his direct life experiences as a mystic. But that's definitely a whole larger conversation. But I, I think that one thing that it's interesting hearing both of you guys, you know, and a lot of what you you both riff on and talk about is kind of the fractal nature of things. And I've both I've heard both of you talk about this in a really interesting way. And what something that Rack hinted on earlier really really tied to this too is that how it's really fascinating how things function at both a macro and micro level and kind of exhibit similar properties at different scales. So it's really fascinating when you know Rack was giving the metaphor of something that's behaving kind of on a on a larger ecological level similar to how like microbacteria works and i know that you've certainly talked a lot a lot about this as well michael that it would make sense that this is how kind of the system operates how things ha happen ultimately when you come back from one of these experiences you have kind of a, a greater understanding of how things work at all levels just completely independent of scale which always kind of fascinates me i'm after this conversation i'm somewhat concerned that the spirits that inhabit these tryptamine experiences are actually the teleporting ghosts of snails <laughs> are like ascended masters that are hanging out in gamma verse and that don't fear the snails just, don't fear them. every time we every time we kill a snail it's like no bueno you know like we've just accidentally ruined some I mean, you were talking about like that that extraordinary love that suffuses one's being before the last and final you know, leap in or uh, embrace of well, that, that's those YouTube videos of snails making love when they when they the shells often the slugs and their whole body is oh. just entwined together and infuse into one God another. Damn. <laughs> they really do. I know, right? The think of it. What a great avatar. 
Hey, Michael, remember, remember Terence McKenna put out there in the 90s that um, maybe the, the avatar of the NN dimethyltryptamine experience was the octopus because it, it couldn't lie, it has its emotions and it talks on its skin with its colors and it pulses its meaning and the only way it can have privacy is the inkjet. And it was like his model for a telepathic creature, which is, you know, communicating at all times. Maybe the snails are the 5-MeO-DMT avatar. Maybe it's not the toads because they're in gamma state and they're potentially in this unified field. No wonder they go so slowly, right? And then they're just, they're just, they're just part of everything. It's like, it's like dreamtime consciousness slugging themselves through the material world and just in this wonder, this, they're like babies, as you said before, and babies are... Uh, you know, talking about God's default um, mode network stuff or the factory reset, they're vibratory fresh. They're clean. They're, they're connected to that inner vibratory thing before trauma and culture and indoctrination and imprints. And, you know, that's why source of the perfect vessels. It's created the miracle of life itself. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's sacred. And we forget that. But then snails, maybe they're holding that vibrational frequency. And maybe, you know... Yeah, maybe we need to. That's why people ball. like to eat them. That's why I don't think I could eat them, though. But then it's like, it's funny, though, because also something like a snail became a clam, right? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It did? Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. Michelle. Um, I'm writing a book about evolution, and I'm, and I'm thinking a lot about how evolution backwashes sometimes, right? And there's, there are times when a multicellular life form actually uh, decays into single-celled life again. I mean, multicellular life has happened. Like, really? Yeah. But like multicellular what? life uh, has happened like 40 times. It's, it's like a stock market thing. It's just going to keep, you know, things keep... Genetic boom and bust. Yeah, but then you might get into a cozy little pocket where you don't need to be as smart. And so you lose your it actually makes more sense for you to just anchor in and, and like hold on and grow in more armor and then you can lose your head and be a filter feeder, right? That strategy, it concerns me because it, what it means is that not only did they give up smart, like not only is this like a, you know, like a cheeky little business kind of raft, but it's, it's also like they gave up what you're talking about, which is like this uh, ecstatic God consciousness, like this, you know, the, uh, the Uber snail mind. And I'm like, man, that's a super bummer for, yeah, the, Uber for, the, for the price that that was the, the cost of security for these creatures. What, are, what do they say that those, those who do do those who don't teach, but those who, <laughs> those who snail snail, Hey, you know, it's so interesting because I, I remember once a couple of years ago, I was in Costa Rica and, uh, I was in a shamanic ceremony with grandfather San Pedro and down on the beach and with, with the, with the 5-MeO medicine, basically if you have a full release and it clears the pathways of the brain and, you know, potentially it actually permanently affects the neurochemistry or the, the wiring of the brain or the pathways and maybe even biologically, as we said, and clearing trauma and things like that. But a lot of people experience what is called reactivations, but I actually think is an ongoing activation. You have a relationship with, mm -hmm. not the toad, that's only the catalyst, but of your own endogenous 5-MeO and what that reveals of the deep source vibration within you when you can open to it and let go and let the ego down. Anyway, I, ha I was having one of these activation episodes which was beyond uh san pedro and it was like a deep five meo toad experience on the beach and watching wave after wave of consciousness crashing and this whole deep sourcing and then i spied these crabs and they were scuttling along the beach and it just struck me that oh my god that's it it's like the beach is human culture 
and the deep sources, you know, the ocean stuff. And we are the crabs. And it's like at some point in human history or perhaps the beginning of his story, it wasn't just that perhaps we had a meteor strike or this physical, um, you know, trauma that happened that made us retreat into culture away from nature. But, you know, essentially all these all these religions and cultures which have stories of the fall or this this declension in consciousness, which was essentially at so at some stage in in our um, our heritage and our, our our lineage, we had a connection with again what Australian Aboriginals call dreamtime consciousness or this sense of unity consciousness, and that was part of the human birthright. And then we had a fall, like we fell from that level of consciousness. And it seemed to me that the crabs and the armoring and culture itself is like a um, outward manifestation of the crabs armoring to protect us from nature, which we became separate from and then started to prey upon and do as a resource and take from to build all these mechanisms to inhabit, to be separate from nature, to protect ourselves from nature because we had had a lack of God consciousness, of unity consciousness, because when you fully surrender into that infinite pool of unconditional love and becoming, it is just the ultimate opening and surrender and it's eternity. And you recognize that you, well, there is no you, but it, it's just everything is not, it's more than okay. It's just, you don't need the shell of the human striving. You don't need this shell of, of this intelligence and ego. Uh, you, you, you are that, that thing. You are source radiating in perfect super union in eternity. And if that radiating comes down in a Steiner sense in rays and incarnates in, in in vessels, in creatures which it grows, if we hold that vibration, then we are enveloped in that love and that openness and we don't fear and we don't retract and we don't armor. And so we know that um, DNA responds dynamically to environment and that, you know, basically the leaps in evolution happen because of environmental needs, you know, catastrophes and changes and climatic changes, and that the evolutionary impulse and the DNA as a mechanism for that is all interconnected. So if, if we start to actually retain a higher vibrational level of source consciousness, which connects us to this feeling of egolessness and that we're all interconnected, well, we got the idea of the flesh bodies or, or the attachment at least to the flesh bodies and to the striving and to this sense of lack of abundance and scarcity. And we're in this interdependent web of existence where energy is being fed throughout the web and it's all perfect essentially. And, you know, a golden age of this state of being. I wonder if we would have a very sudden genetic shift and we would all become snail people. <laughs> Beautiful summary, dude. Well, yeah, it's a, it's interesting how the light-based dynamic, there's a lot of talk with like, you know, um, traditions, ancient traditions of like being, you know, us having light in us and how the experience is very much a light-based experience. So short of becoming a snail person, you know, you, you could argue that one day we go back to the light, which may be that kind of universal source mind in the end anyway, right? So... You know, it's if we could just tinker with our DNA and absorb sunlight and cut out the food, we probably wouldn't need shelter. It's like we could just make love like snails and roll around and orgasmically be one with nature. I mean, who? I, I would give up culture for that. I would give up Facebook for that. I would totally. give up all this, the internet and all this other stuff. Wouldn't that be worth it? Well, don't you think a big take takeaway from the experience, dude, is you said in your what you just your last bit was that there is no you. 
don't you think that maybe that's more accurately described as you are everything, right? Because that's a big takeaway from your experiences is that, you know, you realize yeah, you are everything. But here's the thing. Okay. How does everything mediate itself as everything where, where it, it's a wave, but it's also a set of particles that make up the wave. And somehow in the in the gestalt of the particles becoming the wave, it it um it mediates it and it, it, it it's like i mean you know one of the things i was saying on, on a toad 5meo experience for me when i get to the threshold and there's just enough of the ego left to witness and to not it's like i'm not thinking it's just pouring through me and the intuition and the downloads and the full gamma bandwidth frequency understanding of everything at all times it strikes me as what the Native American traditions call metakwiasan, which is, you know, all my relations, all great spirit, which is all the particles being the whole of nature, but somehow mediating themselves and somehow orchestrating the energy exchange, the dance of life itself in the, the play of forms, you know? Like I deeply understand now that like I say source does not differentiate between the petals on a flower. So if you're doing this work and we're like a seven billion petaled flower, it source doesn't differentiate individuality. It's just one flowering of humanity, and that's just one species within many flowers in the garden. And it's all the same um, hand up, up these all these puppets, you know, up these vessels. And it, it's like, but it is a miracle the way that the larger intelligence within nature, which is potentially the source intelligence in its creation in nature orchestrates everything in this divine unfolding that is is i find in my little drop of egoic understanding it blows my circuit but i i intuit and i deeply understand it in a way that is very short-lived in, in the, the gamma network burst um but is incredibly profound and it's profound on a heart level not even an intellectual level and it's almost like you don't have to understand it because yeah you are that thing but the the miracle and the beauty is what a fucking miracle this life is and the fact that it can it can mediate its own essence and its own being to continue to propagate itself in relation to the needs of these seasons of consciousness and the things that we're in. It's a blooming miracle, as James Joyce might have said. <laughs> yeah, the divine unfolding that you mentioned, dude, I mean, that definitely shows you, I mean, it's like kind of like what's the takeaway from all the experiences with how you live your life here, dude? And I think a lot of that heart-based stuff is the key to it, right? Because it shows you how to be more heart-based in, in connection with that greater ecology of you know, source and the guy and Mother Earth and being respectful in your corporeal form when you're back here to other living creatures, no matter how small, even if they are snails. You yeah. know, Tim Leary said in the 60s, there's a slogan, you know, he loves to sloganize. That's part of why I like Tim. But one of his things was, you know, the, the famous turn on tune in drop out, but the, the lesser known ones maybe, you know, find the others. But then it was like, there are no others. Because when you really fully understand it, it's like, it's just like where... In the human body, we've got billions of cells. In the macro species body, we've got seven billion cells and counting. But we're actually all one gestalt species organism. And it's not just an intellectual thing. The more we understand that, the more that we just continue to give and feed energy out and support each other and be there for each other and love each other, the more we're actually loving ourselves. And, you know, and, and then that should cascade over from our species to all species and to Mother Nature. And then the more we do that, we're clearing the blockages and the traumas of history, and we can hold the vibration of deep source as it manifests in its creation. I think that's the awakening process. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's nice, because the more one steps into that subjectivity of the other 
and then through it like cast the rope across and then you know builds a bridge through and then pretty soon you've got an economy going and then this is this is the psychic process by which one absorbs shadow material like recognizes the other as self you know that you you describe it and then you engage in a dialogue and then eventually that dialogue becomes so rich that you're able to switch seats at the table and recognize the other as as this, you know that you've been acting this whole time and uh you know and the implicit additional step which is uh, by in, you know by switching seats, you realize that the person that you thought you were was also a uh, a performance or a fiction, you know. But like that's that's mm. uh, that's like the zero level, you know, from like three, two, one, zero. But um, yeah, well, and you know, it doesn't. This type of stuff doesn't show you that shows you that you're not in scarcity. You know, you're in abundance because there's like you can look at something from this perspective of like kind of your what we would say, you know, a very popular buzzword during this conversation or egoic perspective, which is like, if you just recognize yourself as like a corporeal being with the way that the world seems like it's going, you kind of feel like, you know, there's no hope. But when you kind of connect to the greater ecology of a larger kind of galactivated, what, you know, Rack might use as a term perspective, it's much more of a challenge and there's much more mystery and there's much more connection. So those kind of bridges are, are more connected because you see things from a larger perspective. So that's kind of a takeaway I always get from these types of experiences and what the medicines really can show us and why, you know, we always kind of want to t- try and help share this material that if it's respected and used correctly, it can really help show people that and really benefit people. You know, there's a quote that I used in uh, my book, I Awakenings, many years ago. It's an ancient hermetic principle that says, we who solve mystery become mystery. And we've said this mystery thing a few times, and there's been a lot of historical legacy of mystic books and texts and uh, religious and spiritual sort of um, lineages and maps that have left behind. And at the core of them, I guess they say, you know, it's all it's about the mystery or you know ken kesey had the same quote he said like you know it's not about uh, about solving the mystery it's about you know the chase or the hunt for the mystery essentially um and then that's where the enjoyment is and i totally agree and i also feel that we're in a different historical uh paradigm perhaps now or we're in a different sort of stage of our evolution and that may have been true in previous eras within history but with the technological capacities at our disposal and i guess our I mean, it is all intellectual, but also there's all these spiritual and emotional capacities, which, um, you know, a lot of these movements are in training as well. But I, And the ultimate thing is to embody the mystery, the mystery which cannot be named, but yet here we yes. are named. I can say source, I can say toad, 5-MeO, I can say I can say dimethyltryptamine. They're just freaking words, right? But I do believe those of us who uh, get drawn into the horizon of the mystery, Oh. Yeah, we lost Rack there. Oh. oh, we just lock him. Oh. Well, you know, one thing, maybe I'll, I'll add him back, but one thing that he's saying back. is... Oh, you're back. Okay. I think the mystery wants us to solve it at this point in his story, because his story is ending, <laughs> and, you know, our story is beginning. And it's like the mystery wants to be solved, and the solving of it is the embodiment of it and the living mystery. And that so much of the scaffolding of culture and of linguistics and the words creates a container 
for the ceremony of embodiment of the mystery. And I think that's what we can do. And that's where, you know, a lot of this cultural learning is happening in the shamanic cultures around the world. And and hopefully, you know, the media that things like Shamans of the Global Village is, is helping be a honeypot to draw people to showing them, you know, the outside flesh body or the container of the experience. But it's not the mystery of the internal experience, but it's part of the mechanism for this engagement on a cultural level to let the mystery blossom and flower within all of us who hear that call and hear that call to action. Yeah, that's beautifully said, dude, because I think the beauty of shamanism and that, you know, why we are so interested in this and why you've made this a huge part of your life and what you've helped show me with the beauty of shamanism, dude, is the direct experience of it. Because like Rack just mentioned, you know, we basically are showing things that if you don't have reference points on them, especially in terms of the first episode, which highlights, you know, the strongest medicine on the planet. um, If you don't have reference points on what the experience looks like, just in terms of when you see somebody else taking it, it looks very kind of scary and intimidating. But when you have proper setup on it and proper context internally for people, it's such a beautiful experience because it's allowing them to have that direct experience, which leads ever so slightly towards what technically you could describe as a little bit of the mystery. And, you know, a mystic, I could speak to this because this kind of correlates with another project that I'm affiliated with. A mystic is somebody that's been initiated into something called the mysterium, which is all about discovering and knowing what that mystery is. The mystics kind of know about this through their direct experiences because you can only experience it. You can't, I mean, obviously we can kind of give, um, suggestions and and show these things and talk about these things on a podcast or show them on a show. But ultimately, it's about people directly experiencing them for themselves through their own life path. And you could argue that's kind of a, a key ingredient to why we're here. So you know, that's that, what that, that yeah. reminds me again that maybe because, you know, ayahuasca and shamanic stuff, it's very popular in mainstream media these days. Or It's not mainstream, mainstream, but it's increasingly ingressing into mainstream culture, this idea of shamanic uh, modalities and that there's a larger world out there that we can experience. Uh, but I wonder if, you know, that and other pathways we've touched upon very briefly, the tantra movement, the meditation movement, the non-dual states, uh, the consciousness hackers, in, in in fact, you know, using technology to entrain brainwave states into, into this field. All of these pathways, I wonder if they are going to synchronize at some near point in, in, in his story into this singularity moment within which, as a, as a species, we all achieve gamma lock, you know, in the network. Because all it really takes is if you have these global meditations where, you know, millions of people are meditating in the same point in space-time all at once and you know, within the, the brain chemistry or the brain wetware, it's like if if we're all achieving a certain state of mind at the same time, on a species level, this entrainment, I think, is happening because if we're all getting onto the same wavelength and we're all synchronizing, then we're creating a circuit for that deeper thing to come through. And if you get a critical mass doing it at the same time, uh, it becomes more permeable and becomes more possible for, for that container to be held uh, on that. Yeah, it's like the evidence of seeing effects and, you know, surrounding people's behaviors with a group meditation or something like that. But I mean, you know, then I would argue, of course, that it's an individual path from one on one. But when you have a group of individuals that are, you know, as we go back towards the beginning of this conversation, maybe at a similar vibratory level, um, you can do amazing things in the aggregate as groups, which, you know, you very much discovered rack through people experiencing medicines together in circles together. So it's like, you know, find find the others and, you know, find your fellowship that you can experience these things with to all level each other up. So that's a beautiful element. Have you gentlemen read Ramez Nam's 
Nexus books. Oh, yes. I fucking love that man. In fact, I invited him along to one of the Terra Incognita projects, uh, 5MEO neuroscience retreats that we're doing. I should hit him up again. Ramez, if you're listening to this, that man gets it. I tell you, the, the Nexus series, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, using technology to have you know, hive mind gestalt, higher level consciousness experiences that lead all the way to to the divine. I mean, it's, and it was interesting enough because he accurately uh, embodied almost in a sort of, you know, spy thriller type novelistic way, almost really realistically how the establishment would push back against such a technology developing if it became very tangible um, and visible in the culture, you know, and how they would almost want to weaponize that because it's a, you know, a threat to the homogenized uh, hierarchy of dominated culture, essentially. Yeah, I think he very convincingly projects the drug war and in general the the war on civil rights into a future where people just want to get freaky and link their brains up with dust, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And the the scenes of people having these group mind experiences, like he talks about how in, not to spoil too much, but like he talks about how in Thailand, the technology is encouraged rather than discouraged as it is in the United States. And how therefore many monasteries have embraced it as a way of deepening their group meditations because then mm. they can all form one group meditator that disappears. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, that they consider it like the fourth turning, you know, that it's it's the next major development in Buddhism, because now you can start, you know, running people as nodes in this massive parallel computation of an even deeper Buddha mind. So, well, it's interesting, because I, I think that it's inevitable, whether it's through a technological mediation or a shamanic sort of uh, modality or natural meditation, all these pathways are pointing towards the same sort of central source and this ability for us to to open up what Terence called the terra incognita, the invisible landscape, that of the mind and of the soul and the spirit, which is within us. And it, with so many of these pathways all pointing to this, it, it's it's not even around the corner. It's basically, it's here. It's arrived. We're doing it. We're doing the work. And I think it gets really interesting. And this is where I really like this idea of neuroshamanism, of using, seeing medicines like the 5-MeO DMT from the Sonoran Desert Toad with neurofeedback, with, um, you know, brainwave entrainment devices, potentially even recording those and using, you know, passenger helmets, uh, magnetic stimulation, cranial stimulation helmets to play around with uh, these modalities and to entrain each other because this isn't sci-fi anymore. We can do this. We are doing this already. And it's like, this is it. It's arrived. We're living in the future now. Well, yeah, buddy. It shows you evolutionarily too. I mean, it seems like doing things in groups is the way that we're intended to eventually go, you know, from a, a group perspective. Because if you look at like Things like the uh, the monks doing the primal om or something like that, you know, where it sounds so amazing when a group of people get together and do something to build something as as a single unit, but in you know a group of people doing it where one individual can do it as well as the group. That's that's always interesting. Or you see the footage in you know things such as Koyawanaskazi, where those kind of tribal you know people do those interesting dances as one, and the the effects that are gotten from that by each individual in that process. How obviously has a larger kind of effect on the system. So it seems like that's how we're intended to move in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I must say group work is definitely where it's at. And uh, even with 5-MeO DMT, 
I, we've been experimenting legally in Mexico with this medicine, doing threshold doses in what we call the five ship, you know, but in terms of like a group gestalt formation. And when, you know, that uh, frontal lobe cortex goes down and individual ego goes down and you essentially have five petals and a single flower that source consciousness is arising within, it creates like uh, an organism, you know, five bodied organism with one soul that is moving with that source energy. And it's just like Nexus. And it, it, and to, to, to utilize technology to record and to entrain and to optimize those brainwave states uh, really, I think, is the way forward. I also know of different practitioners that are working with indigenous tribes in Mexico with the toad who also do without the neurotechnology, but also do group work. And they've been finding the same. There's something really special about when we come together. And you've got to remember that the human organism is a herd creature. We're, We're designed to be part of a tribe we're not designed to be alone. And there's something that happens, I think, electromagnetically or in a capacitator sense, almost like in the matrix, you know, when all the machines go wild and, and use the, the, the vessels of the human organism to host the electromagnetic ability. But it's almost the same for guy and consciousness. When we come together, we create uh, a capacitator that can hold more bandwidth. And so when the, the individual ego is uh, lowered and potentially, and this is what the, the mystic scholar I interviewed the other month was saying as well, there's these Vedic maps and the cultures of the the Indus um, sort of Indian sort of area in the golden age of human civilization, they were also experimenting with group work. And someone in those cultures would potentially hold like fifth level samadhi state and be in deep, um, you know, source consciousness at all times intended to by others and not come out of that. Someone would be in fourth level samadhi consciousness, a rishi or a rishi, um, who would then be sort of tab on that threshold of consciousness and be able to interact. Someone might be a third level Samadhi consciousness in Samboga bliss body state. But, you know, collectively in the gestalt of the culture, someone's got to do that deep work and do the weaving and hold it. And the whole idea of the, the sutras in their, in their understanding was the weavings between this sort of reality and deep source reality and going in and bringing back and going in and bringing back and anchoring heaven on earth. And it needs a group to do that. And then when we do that in groups and we experiment with uh, the, the the loss of, of individuality and the flowering of the gestalt of the group and how source can anchor and manifest and move the group in a single organismic sense, um, I think that's that's the way forward. And I think that's potentially where other species like the insects have gone before. And that you know, they it, it's like it's like capturing the wind or something. You know, you can get blown around, but if you form a sail, if there's something bigger than yourself, you create. Oh no! Oh, oh, we lost. We lost what track a again. Silly time um, to lose you. Well, let me add to that. Maybe while yeah. he loops back around, is that you've done a very uh, brilliant thing, Michael, on this podcast. You're the first person ever to bridge us from you know recognize one project, Shamans of the Global Village, which is this kind of episodic series talking about you know each episode focusing on a specific medicine, purpose and with a specific medicine, to our other project, Terra Incognita, which is Rack, you know, Rack's kind of team of people um, that he's kind of collected essentially doing work in various states of consciousness, sometimes under tryptamine states, uh, states sometimes under 
um, you know, various, you know, meditative states with EEG neuroscans of the brain. So this is kind of now, you know, forging into the other kind of Terra Incognita project, which is also equally fascinating. And we've talked about both, but it, Terra Incognita is all about this kind of group work. And it's, it, it's interesting in the reference points of like, or the reference of like the matrix of, you know, somebody can go into the matrix as an individual, or you can go in with a group of people in different pods, you know, or, or, or how we saw in the film, you know, people strapped up to different, you know, we're going in together as a team. So it seems like from kind of an archaic revival or tribal sense, it's like that's what we're designed to do in the, in a tribe is, you know, all sit around a, a fire or, you know, a, 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 a medicine room or actually in the episode we show at the end of the first episode without kind of giving away the ending, we do show a, a, a moment of us. Um, in unity in a little cave in a little smoke room, which is similar to what the Native Americans used to do, right, where they would pour a sacrament on the fire or take a sacrament together in kind of small dose and all upload together, because that kind of tribal sense of, of connection with your bro you know, fellow brother and sisters is maybe what it's like you know, inherently when we do live more tribally together in small groups that we're all kind of traveling with, not from just a, you know, we're going from one location to another, but in an astral sense, traveling with your fellow tribe. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to say that I'm back, and, and I think that source consciousness cuts me off every time I get too close <laughs> to the truth. That's funny. I bridged the gap, my good man, between Shamans of the Global Village and Terra Incognita. So while well, we had you Thank in you. downtime, Thank you, I, just I just explained the kind of bridge between those two projects because, um, you know, obviously, yeah, Rack has done a lot of EEG work through Terra Incognita, hence a lot of the conversation prior about the brain and the various brain states. Well, insofar as the Incognita is actually Terra, and in that sense uh, <laughs> tangible i'm curious to know with hard-hitting questions this this time guys i'm curious to know from either of you uh, what has your work in these telepathic meta human organisms achieved because i feel like i've definitely participated in these these uh astral jellyfish or cybernetic golden shanti squid whatever the fuck but at the same time you know what, what does it ever achieve though i mean in the sense of the only real truth is that, that you're not in control and that, that you're not what you think you are and that there is a larger force at work that really is you and then it's like how does the ego integrate that and it's like oh my fucking god in the peak of the experience you get it and then for me you know i've been feeling quite tangibly in the last few months this really subliminal awareness of distributed consciousness and sort of the fact that it, it, it like when when I when I go through the five meo experience, it's an ego death, and that means you die. Your ego dies and luckily comes back. But there's such a fear around it right at the edge of it because I know that I'm going, and, and it's it's the biggest thing you can ever do. And so on one tangible level, my fear of death is reduced and my understanding of what I believe is on the other side of, of the individual organism um, dying is completely opened up. And I, I feel very joyful about that space and very open to that space. And I also feel a greater sense in my linear uh, lifetime of letting go of sense of control 
and also being of service to the greater collective and to the awakening of that collective, and also not attached to that because I can't I can't do anything except be an expression of whatever wants to come through, and I can choose to accept or reject that. I can work with it or not. I can be armoring and and closing off, or I can be open and surrendering and letting it come through. But tangibly, I feel connected to that to that uh, Gaian network and to that larger uh, consciousness and loving consciousness of divine source. And it's changed the face of my life. It's changed the path of my life. And hopefully I'm still young enough to embody and to anchor and to put in practice a lot of what it will teach me. Basically, I've seen around the corner enough to know what I need to do next. And it's a deep transformation of my habits, my rituals, my relationship with life, with myself, with my family, my loved ones, my community. And I think that's it's the beginning, or it's not the beginning, it's the deepening of the spiritual path. And it makes it very tangible. Whether I like it or not, I can hide from it. It doesn't go away. The awareness of awareness of that thing is with me every day. That's what it's done for me. Yeah, and it's kind of opened you up to a little bit more of a alignment with maybe what you might argue is your dharma or something in terms of what you're doing with this life around, right? And the practices that you leave. Yeah. And, but it, you know, these experiences open you up so much to the kind of magic and the mystery of life because they show you that the universe isn't this kind of mechanized, cold, mechanical thing, right? There's so much more out there in terms of what you can possibly experience in terms of, to go back to kind of how we started this conversation, the mystery, and how so much of that is, you know, my story in terms of each individual's path. And that is a spiritual path. And yeah, I mean, I used to worry a lot more about things. I used to always be so freaked out about like micro worrying. And now it's like, you know, let go, just be present in the moment and enjoy the path that you're on. And, you know, it doesn't mean stick your head in the sand to what's going on in terms of material reality. But, you know, when you have kind of an experience that's, that's what you might argue is a ever so slight mystical experience, which again is kind of union with the divine, it really shows you that it's a, a path that if you follow it kind of synchronistically, uh, can lead to beautiful things and allows you to have a much more fulfilled and beautiful life without, you know, so much bad attachment to things. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. High five. Well, I just, for clarity, every single thing that you've said so far has just, in its own way, been this totally integral and coherent and completing statement. And then every further statement has then enveloped and contained and contributed more to the, the, the former. And so we're at a point now where pretty much anything you say will suffice as a closing statement that will contain all which came before. Yeah, well, let me just, just, just wrap up. I mean, you know, the show is just trying to kind of give people an ever so slight preview as to what kind of some of these kind of modern practices of some of the things that we've been talking about tonight are, are with people that are, you know, kind of younger people that aren't just kind of, you know, some douchebag in Santa Monica that's claiming he's a shaman with no connection to the lineage of the indigenous people, but trying to show medicine practitioners that have had that kind of lineage through the indigenous traditions and the respect of the wise elders that have showed them how these medicine practices work and how, you know, Octavio, for example, is the highlight of the first episode is somebody that's trained with the kind of local indigenous tribe that has been in the Sonoran, in the Sonoran Desert of Mexico where the toads are. And, you know, we've shown Octavia's practices and how he's helped people with this medicine to give them some of the experiences that we've talked about this evening. So, I mean, for 
for such a very special and rare medicine that most people don't have access to. And, you know, Rack is a, is a rare breed of person that has a plenty of uh, access to it. And, you know, I've had the amazing honor of having, you know, experiences with it as well. That's something that we hold and cherish. But the show is just something that can kind of give anybody that's just has ever so slight interest into this a preview, a window into like, you know, what the experiences that we've had has to kind of lead as stepping stones to maybe what will perhaps one day become your own experiences as well. So this show is just kind of a vehicle to help kind of share a little bit of this information and knowledge because through a podcast, it's great to hear about it, but it's also amazing to kind of see it actually happen. So we're very kind of proud of the result, the pilot episode of what we're hoping to make, you know, a series. This has just been something that's made independently by Rack and I, but we are very kind of proud of what we filmed and what we shoot, what we showed in the first episode, you know, centering around some of the things that we've discussed tonight. It's something that we hope anybody that's interested, you know, can take the time to check out as well. Um, and um, you want to kind of wrap that up, Rack, and we'll kind of share where people can find it, find the show. It's something that can always be found at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. Yeah, well, I, I guess maybe just to, to bring it back into the more mainstream uh, commercial modality, yeah, we're filmmakers. And, you know, I guess I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're mystic filmmakers, Niles, because I know you are. You have your mystic bent as well. And <laughs> that what we're trying to do is really communicate something which is we believe is of value and, you know, it has a lineage. And we're looking beyond just the Sonoran Desert Toad and Dr. Octavia Reddy, that it's designed to be an ongoing show looking at the different earth sacraments and shamanic medicines and many different cultures have been caretakers for on the earth and how this new breed of shamans is arising to connect the plant and earth medicines from the earth to the communities through the modality of the shaman and what the value of that is. So we, they say it takes a village to uh, to raise a child. It also takes a village to support a documentary series. And so we really do rely upon and uh, honor, you know, the contributions of our community out there and people who are interested in shamanism, in documentary filmmaking, in this sort of mystic experience and exploration. And, you know, I just want to thank Niall so much because it's been such a joy working with him and finding him on this planet and how we do gel together as uh, as media makers. And we did this on an incredibly small budget and, you know, a very small creative team. And it enabled us to really get in there and to document this very effectively and very rawly and very honestly and to try to, you know, portray this role of the shaman and being a caretaker for these shamanic sacraments and the lineage. And we want to do this again. This is episode one, and we really hope to document some other shamanic practitioners around the world that are working with iboga and psilocybin mushrooms and San Pedro cactus and salvia divinorum and, you know, even marijuana where it's legal. And there's so many different, uh, you know, what Terence called um, these uh, these exopheromones, that these uh, psychoactive substances of the earth secrete as uh, interspecies messengers. And it really sounds like, feels like Gaia's really wanting us to connect. And so as we document that, we're really documenting this reconnection or reweaving of people with the medicines of the planet. And so we really want uh, people to, uh, to watch our show and to help spread that word and to recommend it to their friends and their networks because we rely upon that support. And so thank you in advance. Gratitude. Yeah. And thanks for having us, Michael. Yeah. It's a pleasure being a future fossil with you, Michael Garfield. Uh, yes. <laughs> I hope that... It, this recording exists a thousand years from now and that your payment mechanisms are still set up and, payments, <laughs> and that your distant descendants uh, or you know your 33rd generation of clones or whatever uh, are able to accept payments from people right. who are amused 
to discover that some piece of you still exists out there. Pay, pay us in money now and pay us in awakening souls as we move on. You know. Right, exactly. Right on, you thanks, guys. Thanks. Well, keep cool, up the great work. Gracias. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.